welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, what's up? New Knock On Podcast. This one's going to be pretty cool. This is with a friend of mine you've never heard before. You've probably seen him. Well, I know they saw you on an episode one time. Yep, one of your episodes of uh, Turkey Knock Hunt. On. Yep, Turkey Hunt. You won the belt. I did. I That's the right. Belt that you year. did. I forgot that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you were uh, – I forgot you came in and, and dominated. So um, for those of you who haven't followed the TV show, my – I don't want to say you're my guest because you're just my friend. We're having a conversation and we're recording it. But uh, I'm with President Dr. Steve Leith. Would that be the right way? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> flexible on that. But uh, I have been and continue to be a university president. That is true. And a doctor. Yes. Yep. So um, just to give everyone a background. Well, right now, I guess they're saying, well, what what university? University of Auburn. Auburn University. You've changed colors. Yeah, Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. You were at ISU here in Iowa, and then now you're down south again, which is you're a North Carolina person. That's where your main main home is, so you like it, that neck of the woods. I love it down there, too. It's It's such a, a cool place. It's a beautiful part of the world. We lived 27 years in North Carolina and loved our time in Iowa, but are real pleased to be close to family and back where uh we have some land and things like that yeah you have a very cool life a lot of people don't know it because they see you from the work side we'll we'll get into it but just to give everyone a background um several years ago i was on an airplane leaving des moines and i was sitting um i think i got upgraded i'm sitting in a seat and I had my computer and it said knock on and I opened it up and I started to work on like a, I think it was like a hunting photo for an article or something. And I might've been writing an article. And as I was writing, I highlight where I'm going to insert a photo. And then I kind of find the photo and the lady next to me kept looking over and she's looking at my computer and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Oh no, does she not like hunting? Cause sometimes you ride next to someone that is not a hunter and you worry about it if you're, you know, really doing that. I didn't want to be offensive to someone, which actually will lead into another topic later. So I'm trying to be mindful of that. And she goes, well, what do you, what do you do? And I was, it took me five minutes of trying to dodge the question. And she was adamant about really, I'm like, well, you know, I kind of do writing and I'm into outdoor stuff. And then eventually she got it out of me and I said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bow hunter. And she's like, are you a writer? And I said, yeah, I'm a writer. And she said, you know, are you like a professional hunter? And I said, well, that sounds weird. I would just say I'm a professional outdoors person. And she's like, you know, I bet my boss would like to meet you. And then I would didn't know who she was or it was kind of one of these loaded questions where I was kind of not really wanting to just hand out information. So anyway, I gave an email and I said, I'm getting ready to be traveling for, for a month here. And 
if he's serious, you know, here's my email address. And then sure enough on the day, cause I knew I was traveling for like three and a half weeks when I first met her, all of a sudden here's an email from you and you'd read some Peterson's articles, I think. Right. And at first I felt, I felt embarrassed because you kept saying, you know, if you ever want to come to a football game and I didn't take you up on that until November, because I remember I had tagged out and I, you asked me again if I wanted to come to a game and I asked Sharon and Harry, do you guys want to see a college football game? And they said, yeah, let's go. And it was at that time when the school sent us a formal invitation that I realized I was poorly addressing you as Steve for <laughs> that was certainly fine that's what I prefer <laughs> yeah so um that's how our friendship started and we've we've bow hunted together we've shot in the backyards quite a bit together um we've I don't know we've had some really fun hunting experiences and really fun trips up in British Columbia and the way out in the middle of nowhere. And we've also served on the, or still do, we're both active Boone and Crockett club members. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did all this start for you? Just to give the the listeners a little background, because it's really cool. Yeah, and even more than hunting, I think one reason we hit it off, John, is because we both truly love archery. You yep. know, we love the outdoors, and we've been able to combine outdoors and archery together with bow hunting, but we love archery, and that's really how it began for me. Um, when I was just a boy, my dad had uh, gotten a bow. We lived in Minnesota, and he got a, one of the very early herders recurves, which I now have. He's handed it down to me, and it's kind of fun to look at it because it's the first bow I ever hunted with. But at the time, he got us, my brother and I, junior bows, and we just loved to shoot our bows. And so we developed a passion for archery, what we would call traditional archery now, far before it was popular. Yeah. And I think when I was a young teenager bow hunting, people thought that was kind of peculiar. (laughs) And I certainly didn't expect the passion for bow hunting over the next 40 to 50 years that's come as a nation and you know for me personally but I still truly just like shooting my bow as well as bow hunting I love it both and uh, so my dad was uh, the enabler he's the one that got us started in archery got us started in hunting and it's something that stuck with me so 61 years old now for 50 years yeah that's amazing when you look back you especially for me I've I feel like I've done it a long time but I remember when I saw the very first 3D targets and that was 30 years ago so it's almost doubling it I mean what it there just wasn't that many cool things to shoot you had to be creative that was back when you know playtime you you invented how creative you wanted that to be so what'd you shoot back then well you know back in the day our bows were such light pounders because we were little so you could shoot at hay bales, you could stump shoot, you could shoot at almost anything without really damaging arrows. It wasn't until we got older or pulling more weight that, you know, we needed to really refine our targets and what we could do. But early on, it was fun as a young boy to be adventuresome and shoot at a specific leaf or a stump or a log or bales of straw. And uh, I still like doing that to this day <laughs> where you can just kind of stump shoot with traditional archery. Yeah, you don't pass up shots. I can 
I can vouch for that. You, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. like to shoot. Yeah, it's fun. Which is good. And you get better that way. And you've come full circle too. You, you're. I call you Inspector Gadget because you, you know about more archery things than I do. You, like, I'll start talking about something. You'll be like, well, maybe I bought one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been around a long time, but you know, I love traditional equipment. I've gravitated to modern archery to a large extent because you can be better and more capable with less practice time. And due to my job, it's hard for me to practice and. We'll probably talk about it some, John, but you always want to be really, really ethical and you want to make sure your shots are good. But you're right. In the last couple of years, I've been shooting my longbow more than ever and have really enjoyed that. In most of my practice sessions now, I'll shoot my compound just a few shots. Then I'll shoot my longbow till I feel like I can't concentrate anymore. Then I'll go back and pick up the compound again. And I interchange them through the season as well. You... Was it this past year you went and did some shooting with uh, Byron Ferguson? Yes, I was really fortunate. Years ago, I met Byron, who's one of the great traditional archers of all time and certainly of the modern era. And um, he made a bow for me back in 2001. We looked it up in his handwritten records and found the time he made the bow. So it was 17 years ago, and I brought it up there, and he helped refine my ability to a great extent. And I wasn't sure I was learning anything at first, <laughs> but uh, he's got a kind of a sneaky style of teaching. But when we got all done, I was way better than I, when I got there. As a matter of fact, he's making another bow for me right now that I'm going to plan to pick up soon. Great teacher, great archer. Um, it was really fun to spend time with him. And, you know, so I took this job in Auburn. I'm living in Alabama, and somewhere along the light bulb went off, and I thought, you know, Byron lives in Alabama. So it worked out real well to go see him, and he was a gracious host, great teacher. Out of all the things that you've experienced as a bow hunter, what one thing stands out, do you think, that just really makes you – I don't know, just rekindles all the excitement. Is there one aspect to it? I know you love you love elk hunting. Um, we moose hunted together. I think we both struck out. Right, oh, we that we had terrible weather. Yeah, That's it was, right. It's a bad time to be moose. You know, I could talk about specific adventures and sometimes success in the field, but to tell you the truth, John, the biggest thing that sticks out is the people I've met. Yeah. Like you, you know my friend Bill from danville virginia the relationships i built the people that care about the outdoors care about a conservation ethic those people have been lifelong friends and you and i will be that's what's most special you're right i love being in the elk mountains in september when they're bugling and i love doing other kinds of hunts but the reality is it's the great people i've met along the way can I tell one story about you? Because <laughs> <it> probably <laughs> he, he's looking at me like, I don't have any bad ones. But the one every now and then in a hunting camp, something happens where at uh, every other hunting camp, you you have to have that story. And unfortunately for you, um, you're a story that comes up every time someone says, I'm going to start a fire. <laughs> <laughs> I do like my fires. So uh, just to backtrack, up in British Columbia where I've hunted for 20-something years and, and Steve hunted with me one time for moose hunting. Anyway, 
the the cabins up there i learned 15 or 16 years ago that the cabins up there they were incredibly cold in the morning you'd start a fire there was no insulation and by the time you woke up you would lay in your sleeping bag just waiting uh for someone to get up and start the fire because it was that cold up there and I decided one year that I would go ahead and make an easy investment of buying insulation for the cabin that I stayed in every time, which by the way, these cabins are very small. It's about the size of a tractor shed, you know, like a lawnmower shed enough for a couple cots and a, and a little bitty wood stove. So I knew that this thing, it got hot very fast and it stayed hot (laughs) for a long period of time. So it was cold. Steve and I had been wet, miserable for a day. We came back and we were waiting for dinner and he said, I'm going to start a fire. And I said, okay, no problem. I said, but you know, be mindful. This thing gets hot pretty fast. (laughs) He said, okay. So he got a little fire going and we went inside and had dinner and came back out and went back in there and it was nice and toasty. I mean, it was, it was very warm and toasty in our cabin. It was about perfect. Then. It was about perfect <laughs> at that point. And Steve proceeded to open the lid to this camp stove and chuck firewood in there <laughs> as if as if we were trying to build a bonfire for the high school homecoming rally. And I said, I don't know if you want to do that. And he's like, I don't know. I like a warm cabin and, you know, it's a long night and all right, well, I fell asleep, and then I woke up about three hours or so later, and it was so dark outside. All I could see was I could see the door was open, and I could see the silhouette of a man sitting on a chair out (laughs) on the porch of our cabin in the... I don't even know how cold it was out there, but it was cold. Well, with the heat coming from the doorway, it didn't feel that cold. <laughs> and our cabin was so hot, and every the windows were open, the door was open, and it was just, there was no breeze, and there was no way of, the, the there was no way of cooling that thing off. Like, we had to ride it out. We had created basically a Northwoods dry sauna is what we had done, or I had done. It was, it was pretty amazing. And I remember the way the fire, the, the camp stove was glowing so hot that I could see, like Steve looked orange and I could see him sitting on this chair kind of, I don't know if you were partially sleeping or if you were just realizing that that was a terrible idea but i kind of had this vision in my head like is he okay right now and i just said steve are you okay and he said john i am so hot right now i was sitting out there hoping you'd sleep through it but you didn't of course i don't know how anybody could have slept through that it was really hot yeah oh that was a that one story every time someone starts stoking a fire and they get a little crazy on the wood i start saying hey listen i've been down this road before (laughs) we don't want to do that (laughs) we're all going to wake up in a few hours and someone's going to be out on the porch in a chair trying to ride this out so let's avoid that at all costs oh yeah that was a great story now what what do you think as a bow hunting community what type of direction do you think we need to go 
from the aspect of, of ethics, because you and I have dove into this subject a few times with the Boone and Crockett Club and some committees that we've been on, and especially being around some of the people that, well, some of the people that you've introduced me to, which you really have to, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's, make sure that, you know, people, you have to be sensitive to the fact that some people are not hunters. And that even if they're open-minded to it, it's still a, I would say a fragile subject. Um, and you have to be professional and you have to be tactful about it. And I think it's one of the reasons, at least my relationship with you and some of the people that we've mutually uh, been around, I just feel like I've really changed the way that I um, that I show my hunting experiences. You know, there's times where I think twice about stuff, and honestly, I can say there's certainly times where I've posted something where I thought, well, yeah, maybe that was a little bit more sensitive than I thought. And in one aspect, I see where people come from where they say, you know, we're hunters, we need to stand up for it, we don't need to back down, but in the same sense do we do more harm than we do good for hunting? And, you know, what are some of the things that you think we should be mindful or maybe a little more tactful on in that subject? Well, I think if we go, we could approach this from a lot of ways, John, but if I think about the North American model for conservation, it's what's led to all the restoration of wildlife in this country and why we have all these resources. If we lose the model, we kind of lose everything. And, my concern would be the people that don't understand hunting or the role it's played in funding conservation in this country. If they were to oppose it, not only would hunting go away, but our whole conservation model would collapse because the way the funding is done. Um, so I think we have an obligation if we love wildlife and love wild places to make sure this whole management model that's the envy of the world now stays in place. And so like you, I'm sensitive that we portray ourselves in a responsible manner and I think there's a surge right now with people who have not traditionally hunted who are interested in you know natural food high quality food lean food and they're interested in hunting but they want to make sure that they participate in something that makes sense according to their ethics like that we use the 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 animals we kill that we use them for meat we don't waste them we're not just hunting for horns and I think guys like you and I understand that well. And we're trying to set examples for them. We're trying to set examples for young people, too, on a responsible use of our resources. And I think, for the most part, we've done an amazing job in North America with that model. Well, you and I are both very fortunate that we're, we're members in the club with Mahoney. And we've got to hear him speak many times, not only in a in a huge like convention type area, you know, where maybe someone like the Sheep Foundation or something hires them to come in. But we've been able to just sit in meetings and committee meetings where we can just talk to him and he has some of the 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 best insight and understanding and and I think we get to see it from a slightly different perspective so that we understand our need to be a little more sensitive. And it's unfortunate that not everybody gets to, exp you know, gets to see it from that way. And it's one of the things that, that 
we're challenged with, at least in the Boone and Crockett Club, you know, one of the committees that you head up is um, outreach, and that's trying to get the the correct message of the exactly. Boone and Crockett Club out to people. And, you know, I should probably let you maybe give a little bit more uh, background to the Boone and Crockett Club because the one th- thing that was hard for me when um, when you nominated me was I told you I'm not an advocate to score, but you did a really good job of saying, listen, there's way more to th- like, there's way more to the Boone and Crockett Club than score. And once I realized what the club fights for and what they do for for hunting and for conservation above that i realized yeah i i you know i had always looked at boone and crockett as a score that goes with the world's largest animals whereas the committees and the power and the teamwork behind what effort they put forth to the entire hunting and conservation community is well it's sadly it's sadly just um it's not known but that's what teddy wanted teddy roosevelt wanted from the beginning he wanted it to be a silent right he he originally didn't want it to be a big voice and take credit for things i forget how it was how it was expressed but i remember that was intentional and and I'll, I guess I'll let you lead from here, but sure, I'd be glad to. I mean, if we go back to the beginning, like you are to Teddy Roosevelt's time in 1887, when there was so much concern about the demise of wildlife and the uh, the hunting, but not in a sport hunting sense, in a commercial sense, was decimating wildlife populations. Roosevelt and others, Gifford Pinchot, others decided something needed to be done. But their intent was to be a conservation organization, to be the thought leaders, to put ideas in place and mechanisms in place to conserve wildlife, grow the populations, and make sure this resource stayed. They weren't looking for credit, like you say. They were in the back. So many of the things we take for granted with the Forest Service, Geological Survey, some of the most significant conservation acts. The duck stamp. Duck stamp. Uh, which really came out of Iowa where you live, John, and I used to live. Um, Ding Darling pushed that program. A regular member of the club did the original duck stamp print. Uh, Yellowstone Park, these all came out of club initiatives, even though they're not widely recognized, which was their intent. They were more concerned about the results than credit. But they have been hugely significant, and we're still trying to be thought leaders. So there are many hunters that know about the record book which was really originally designed as a scientific database to see where the populations were healthy and what animals were harvested in which areas so they could make assessments of them. And, of course, you know, it became identified with large animals. But that was only one part of the club. And I think for guys like you and me that care about wildlife, wild places, and conservation, it's probably not the part we focus on. We focus on... Yeah, I don't even really know what goes on in there. Like yeah. even in those meetings, it's it's not, it's yeah, it's not my my forte. Right. And so, for me, for example, I'm interested in getting the message out. We have this great fair chase campaign right now to really push ethical, responsible hunting and participation in the outdoor sports. And those are the kinds of things that I'm passionate about. And I think you are too. And they're really, really exciting. Yeah. What type of things? stand out that you think just as a hunting community 
we could do that's easiest to help not only the initiative of, of us with the Boone and Crockett Club, but just the hunting community as a whole. Because like you said, there is a massive movement right now from people that may or may not still even favor hunting, but what they are totally favoring is knowing where their food comes from. And that's the hardest part for them is they're like, well, if this is the only way I can get, you know, pure, real, you know, un untouched organic food, then yeah, I'm open-minded to hunting and, you know, they want to learn it and want to be ethical to it, which is, you know, why I started target shooting was because I wanted to be an ethical hunter. I, you know, I went out and missed my first animal and just thought, man, that was, it almost felt irresponsible to really not be able to have control of that moment. So that's why I started becoming more in depth with archery. And then now I'm fortunate in the fact that I've been affiliated with companies from an internal point of view, um, like Matthews and like Hoyt and Easton and these companies where I learned what, what I show or what I say, how quick it impacts, you know, on a, maybe on a little bit more magnified level than if you're just, someone on Facebook maybe that, you know, no one really sees or, you know, doesn't have a huge follower to maybe mainline media. But now I realize it is a sensitive thing. And as much as I want to defend what I'm really passionate and love, I also recognize the fact that, and this is one thing um, Mr. Mahoney talked about, is you just don't have control on how media spins that to where it could be extremely negative and impactful to what we're what we're all proud of and and essentially now we're fighting for well i think you're one example of the good things john because you've gone out of your way and your whole brand and some of your time and emphasis have changed over the years and you've done a remarkable job of showing how you can take the result of this hunting and turn it into great source of high quality protein some of the shows you're on where you're cooking and people are super excited and they should be about the high quality meals you put on the table as a matter of fact you served one today for lunch that you prepared right here with some venison loin that was exceptional along with a great assortment of other things so i think that's part of it i think the other thing we can do and you and i are both proponents of this we don't have to compete with each other this is like um a situation where we've got to decide what's right, what's ethical for us. So a guy like you could probably ethically shoot an animal with a bow farther away than I can. But that doesn't change the experience I have in the woods. We still have just as much fun. And it's kind of like golfing with someone that's a zero handicap golfer. You can still golf with them and you can both have fun and you can both improve and um, have a great experience together. So I think some of the things guys like you and I need to stress is really understanding conservation model, understand the importance of using our resources wisely and putting it on the table, and then also make sure that young people in particular realize this isn't a competition for size of antlers or distance shooting. This is about being ethical, following fair chase guidelines, and doing what you're capable of doing in a responsible way. Yeah, the distance thing is a good subject because, well, I've always intentionally tried to almost downplay that 
um, for the most part. And it, you know, and it's, it's for a reason. I, I was in a camp one time where I did make a shot that was longer than, you know, than average, I guess I'll say it that way. And back at camp, you know, the, my guide made mention, you know, this is, this was the shot and how amazing of a shot it was. Well, next thing I know, two nights later, um, back in camp, another guide from another hunter that was there was saying that they had an opportunity, but you know, they miss like two or three times and had multiple opportunities, but didn't, didn't get it. And we, when me and, you know, well, it was Bert who, you know, at that time owned the outfitter where Steve and I have gone as well. Um, they pretty much just said, well, he wanted to shoot one yard further than Dudley. So he wanted to, you know, he wanted to shoot one further and that was just really poor judgment. You know, and that's the one thing yeah, that's that I've, irresponsible. Yeah, that's irresponsible, and I feel like that's something that, as a community, we really need to to take. I don't know. We have to police ourselves, so to speak. Otherwise, we're going to lose what's so valuable to us because it truly is fragile. I mean, you you're in um, you're in company with people. I think that's far above what I, what I, what I would understand. And how often, um, how often does it come up that, you know, you have to deal with someone that's maybe been, been really offended by a hunter that did something that reflects poorly on the entire, maybe the entire group. Um, well, I think you're right. And we've got some examples in society and even on television shows that are probably not things you and I would participate in. Um, but we're fortunate, for example, at my university, we have one of the best wildlife programs in the country, and our faculty do a great job of introducing conservation and conservation model and the role hunting can and should play in it to a number of people. And I think it's important that the non-hunters, which are the majority of people in this country, uh, see people that are modest, responsible uh, hunters. Yep. And so they talk to me, they talk to you, they talk to others and say, oh, well, that person is a hunter. They're responsible. They care about the resources. They care about using the game they harvest. And I think we've got to continue that message in those examples, especially for the young people coming into the outdoor world and for the people that have largely been uninformed. What areas, you're, you're a botanist, um, so obviously the outdoor plant and wildlife, you're, that's your realm. And you, do you still do a trip every year just to visit someplace that you haven't been to just to study? Are you still doing that? Cause I know several years ago, you always tried to do one trip to a different part of the world where you could study a plant or something that, that was unlike something that you had already done. Are you still doing that? I don't get much chance for pure science anymore, <laughs> but I'm still on a one international agriculture board. So occasionally I get trips with board meetings to Africa and uh, where we're doing a lot with uh, small shareholder farmers, primarily women farmers. And so I get to see some interesting, exciting things. But, you know, I incorporate that into my other trips. If I get a hunting trip, you sometimes you've seen it, John, where I'll get distracted by a 
plant disease on a tree would walk by <laughs> or something like that. And uh, I still sometimes miss my science. I, my expertise was in plant pathology. And um, matter of fact, I was talking to your son about it, who was doing a plant pathology project from college here recently. I do miss it some, but I, I try and incorporate it into my daily life. We had a, a tree go down uh, in our place where we live in Auburn right now and I went out immediately to study you know the the cause of the the root failure and let it blow over so I do miss it sometimes what do you think we're doing as hunters that are um kind of favoring that whole aspect of you know the outdoors and there's so many that I can think of just from just from me purchasing my farm the longer I've had it the more I've realized well, I realize there's so many different types of uh, programs out there that you can almost spend a lifetime in like an NRCS office trying to figure out different programs that are available for you to improve habitat or change habitat in some form or another. I know like both of us have had um, small farms where we've taken part in different CRP programs or like CP25 programs. I, I did a TSI program. Did you do a TSI program uh, on your place? I don't think I did. <laughs> and did you do a wetlands thing or no, something? No, I looked in the wetlands, but I was doing CRP and put in uh, some game bird mixes and really was pleased with the progress we were making towards bringing wildlife back at higher numbers on the place before we sold the Iowa place. How important do you think it is for hunters to be involved with you know still still to have a big voice in some of this public land stuff i know there's a huge movement right now for public land ownership and i know there's a lot of there's been a lot of um times here recently where there's been some bills that have been trying to be passed for you know government to have access to some of those lands i mean how critical do you think it is that we as hunters and conservationists maintain all that because i know that was like you said several of it is based from back when the the you know when when teddy was starting a lot of this stuff and making sure that was things that were always available to people well i think it's critical because the reality is the hunters and fishers the ones that are paying for it and when you look at the billions of dollars they've put into conservation over the years Everything from Trout Unlimited with huge impacts on clean water to things we've done with duck stamps, excise taxes. If you think about it, who votes for a tax at 11% rate on themselves other than hunters and fishermen, which we did on all the conservation projects we buy. So if we were disenfranchised from those lands and withdrew from them, the primary funding source for all of them goes away. The funding source for the people that want to walk on them, camp on them, you know, look at... Uh, birds and other wildlife much of this plant diseases land, yeah plant diseases <laughs> much of this public land you know the infrastructure behind it and the access to it is paid for by hunters so when you see a bumper sticker that uh, says something like hunters the first conservationists or hunters the real conservationists or hunters pay for conservation those are all truisms yeah uh, I had a, you had touched on one thing I was wanting to, to talk about. Did, have you ever, have you ever heard any numbers? I know that you do a lot of, a lot of what you do as your everyday job is grants and right. funding and everything. If we weren't involved in say, you know, 
a whole anti-hunting movement came in and took that away, how fast do you think it would crash? Like, do you think, do you think there's any way government could, could structure grants and things that would, that would support that? Or do you think? Oh, I don't think so. If you look at the, the bills on some of these, um, urban areas where they've hired people to deal with the deer herd problems, everything from, you know, harvesting deer to try and, um, put in birth control, uh, it's just cost prohibitive. It's extremely expensive and even just a very, very limited scale. Uh, so you run into all of these management problems where you've got human wildlife interfaces. But in terms of managing the wildlife on these big plant pieces of land, especially out west, there would be no funding for it in practical terms. Pretty quick. Yes, very quickly. Yeah. If you think about how quickly the Pittman-Robertson's McIntyre-Stennis monies are used up on a regular basis, there's no real bank account that they could draw from those monies come in and they're used for management every year so the money would go away almost instantaneously yeah that would be disastrous it would be for everybody that enjoys wild places one thing a lot of people don't know about you even probably from your work is that you had an archery shop at one time i did even (laughs) even when you had a really important role in north carolina with the universities you had your and you were uh one of our dealers too yeah long before <laughs> i was a, an administrator my sons and i ran an archery shop on the side really enjoyed it and uh both my boys have bows and have enjoyed it it was it was good quality time together and i've always been interested in the technical aspects of archery not as far evolved as you are but i've enjoyed it and seen a tremendous expansion in history from <laughs> you know the very very i remember seeing the first Jennings Allen type compound bows when I was still living in Pennsylvania before I even went to college all the way to what we have nowadays and I look at the new technology it's truly phenomenal I've never lost that passion for the traditional archery or following the new technology yeah I left you unattended for maybe five minutes at the ATA show (laughs) (laughs) and I come back and you had possibly bought one of the coolest recurve bows I had ever seen. Yeah, that is, that bow is actually a work of art and (laughs) you could just put it out as an art object. It was hand carved, hand inlaid. It was absolutely beautiful bow. And, uh, I don't regret buying that. That is a a beautiful piece. I remember you said you were taking that on one of our hunts and I'm like, are you sure? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably a little too pretty to, to <laughs> knock around the woods on, but it is it is a fun bow. Um, Do you think you like traditional archery more than compound? No, I think I like, it's kind of like people ask me what I like to hunt or, you know, what season I most enjoy. It's the one I'm participating in. So yeah. when I've got my compound in my hand, it is more technical, and you focus on the technical aspects, and you set much higher accuracy standards for yourself. When you've got the pure, simple longbow in your hand, things change. Although, with Byron's help, I, I did hit an aspirin, I think, three times in a row, which was pretty phenomenal. So, But realistically, it's just a whole different experience, and I can enjoy whichever one I'm participating in. You were also a wrestler? Yes, I was. Yeah, that was my sport. In, uh, At Penn? Uh, no, I was, uh, yeah, in Pennsylvania, and uh, um, I enjoyed that tremendously. It's a great personal discipline sport from the fitness you have to you know get to as well as you know you're out there by yourself now you have a wrestling team and you're wrestling at different weights and you'd like your group of men at the time now there's women wrestlers but you'd like to 
all win, but when you were on the mat, it was just you. Yeah. And uh, it's kind you of control a, your own destiny. Yeah, different kind of experience than some other sports. Um, but uh, I wish I had more time for these pursuits, and one day I'll retire, and I'll probably shoot every day. But I still shoot my bow as, as often as I can, and I'm pleased to say that uh, right now our university has plans to build a, a new archery park, which is really exciting. Yep. I agreed to come down and take part for the opening of that. That'll be exciting. Yeah, that'll be really, really cool, which we had um, we had worked pretty diligently um, at ISU. Shades is spotted a UPS driver, everyone. Um, at ISU, you had some archery already there. Yeah, we had a very uh, vibrant archery club with an indoor facility and um, limited outdoor facility, and we've partnered with uh, Alabama Chuck Sykes, who's our director of uh, Alabama Freshwater Fisheries and Wildlife, and he's uh, providing grant money. We're building an archery park, and the sign-up for the archery club was huge. Uh, young men and women showed up on the first day to sign up, and we've already had organizational meetings. One of our young faculty is uh, overseeing that club, and we're pretty excited about the future of archery. Of course, Alabama has a great outdoor tradition, too. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, down down south, well, that's where it all started for me. You know, down mm-hmm. south, it just seems like, you know, hunting camps and shooting bows and duck hunting and crappie fishing, you know, that was a very imprinted lifestyle down there. It's I don't see that as much up here. Um, it seems like the further north you go, it's it seems like it's more, I don't know, it's more like in pockets certain areas it'll have it certain families but not necessarily like the majority i think it's less of a majority up this way compared to where i was from the mississippi delta Mm -hmm. but i think it's really really important i always had fun coming when you were at isu half of the garage was an x-press (laughs) <laughs> block targets <laughs> that's true yeah that was my uh garage door number three was archery i think every person in an executive job like me needs some kind of release and archery has always been that for me and especially the target archery because with very little prep time and you didn't really even have to get out of your dress clothes you can shoot a bow yep and it gives you a chance to unwind from the day take a different uh focus on things and i think it makes you a better leader when you can have a few minutes of downtime to just decompress and archery provides that there's some sports that take a long time like to go play golf for example um, or do a lot of prep work like if you like to ride a horse for example but archery in relatively minutes you can be shooting and have a nice archery session and that's fun and it's so different it clears the mind like I mean, if your mind's cluttered, you're not going to be very good at it. <laughs> no, right. You have to focus. And uh, yeah, you focus enough on the compound bow, but to shoot the traditional equipment well, it's really about focus. One of the things I really like about bow hunting is I feel like if I meet someone new that I don't have any knowledge that they were a bow hunter or a hunter and you meet in some type of environment to where it's very professional and everyone's trying to follow protocol intact and all of a sudden if you realize somehow in in a different conversation oh you hunt yeah i hunt 
it seems like it's an immediate bond that seems stronger than if someone's like, hey, yeah, I play racquetball. Yeah, I play racquetball too. Or if I, you know, you play golf. Yeah, I play golf. We both play golf. But it seems like if you meet someone and you know they're a hunter as well, and it's kind of a semi-private part of their life, it seems like you can build a stronger relationship off the bat because you recognize that they've probably experienced some hardship. They get their hands dirty. They, you know, they, they probably have to have prep time and, and, uh, yeah, they understand a different aspect of life that I think people that have never, you know, it's just like you said with wrestling with Harry, I told him, or I told Sharon, I said, one of the things I would want to request as being a dad and having a parental decision is I think Harry either needs to do four years of swimming or four years of wrestling. Even if he doesn't really want to, I think we should really make, make it a point. So, and it's because I knew that there were certain aspects to those two sports that would be a major emphasis on how he is as a student and as a employee and as a dad and, and as someone that has to have self-control of their time and their effort. And I think being a, a bow hunter, um, shows some of the same disciplines in a way. Oh yeah. And you're right. The bond comes strong. And I think part of it is somewhere in the back of your mind, you know, these men and women you meet that are hunters when you talk about have experienced things that most of society hasn't. For example, if you'd ask someone to go deep into the woods in the Frank Church, River of No Return Wilderness or in British Columbia in the pitch dark and, you know, the sun comes up and the birds sound and the whole world comes alive around you, most people will never experience that. Yep. But if you've, you're talking to a hunter, you know they've probably had these similar experiences and had the similar challenges of trying to, for example, stalk close to an animal that sees well and hears better than you and smells better than you and those kinds of challenges and the physical exhaustion of some of the hunts we've been on. <laughs> you know that people have those experiences, but most people in society don't anymore. Yep. I remember last year, Sharon and I were in New York and we were looking for, I don't know if it was a store or a restaurant, and I looked on my phone and it, it wouldn't get a signal because the buildings were so high. And I walked up to a person who I could only assume they they just appeared like they were a city person. I don't know if, you know, it might not be fair to say that, but it... Like, it looked like that was part of their everyday life was being in the city. And I said, hey, do you know where such and such is? And they're like, no, no, I have no idea. And I'm like, I know it's close by. And they're like, yeah, sorry, have no idea. And then I literally went one and a half blocks to the right. And my phone picks up and it was right there. And I'm thinking, if this was a giant farm that I own and someone said, Hey, do you know where that really big maple tree is? And you'd say, yeah, yeah, I know where that is. You have to go through this ditch and over there. I just, for me, it clicked. And I realized that even some of Sharon's friends that live in England that have lived within the same 10 mile radius, their entire life, they really don't have much recognition of what's it like 15 miles. You know, it's, it seems like if you've never gone out of that little bitty concrete square 
it's amazing to me. Well, it's amazing to me what I feel like some people are really missing in life. And, and for me, hunting has filled that gap. Oh, it's neat to be in the woods. And some people look at it as just a big pallet of trees. And if you get comfortable, you start to see all the details and differences. And you always marvel when you read the stories of Boone that he had an ability to walk through an area and two years later he could come back with no map and recognize features to the point he could follow where he'd been before. But I think that's part of the fun of being in the woods for guys like you and me is that we see those details and look at the different trees or the size of the trees or shapes of trees or species of trees and the way the water flows and it it makes sense to us and I think that's part of the adventure. I remember one of the experiences I had, I was with someone that I had taken hunting and they weren't familiar with the outside. I could tell like they wanted to make sure their flashlight worked and they're like, do, you, do we need a GPS? I'm like, no, <laughs> we'll make it back to the truck. And if not, we could, we could walk 20 minutes some direction and we'll find a road. Like we'll be okay. And we were in the tree. It was fall. It was November. They were there kind of just, um, because they were wanting to do a little documentation on kind of my daily life. And I remember it was one of those perfect days where a big uh, boat archery where all of the leaves let go at one time. Have you ever seen a tree let go? Oh, yeah. And where it's that- just holding on to its leaves, and then for whatever reason, it just makes this decision of everything's going to come off. Ginkgos are famous for that. Which ones? Ginkgo trees. Oh, really? Yeah, they drop their leaves almost simultaneously. It, I was um, I was in a tree stand, and one did that, and it was just enough breeze. It wasn't like a ripping wind, but it was just enough breeze to where just a whole flurry of yellow leaves just blew through us, and it, you know, almost 80% of that tree let go at one time. And he's like, what just happened? And I said, man... This is something that you would watch a National Geographic show to be able to see this in slow motion. And you were here to feel it on your face. I said, the tree just let go. And I had to explain. And he's like, wow, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's, I just wish more people could experience it. I wish they would understand that there's just way more than, you know, you shoot a bow, at least for me, if I shoot something at 20 yards, it takes a second and a half, but in a year's time between this year in November and the year before in November, when I, when I shot my bucks, there was 364 days and 24 hours and 59 minutes and 59 seconds that had passed to where I got to experience so much more than just that one second of a shot. And I think people our age, John, do have concerns. And I don't think it's just generational. I think there's some truth to the fact that when we tell young people to put their phones down for a minute and experience the world around them, and I think for those of us that spend time in the woods, you have more of a tendency to do that and where things slow down and you observe the details in nature that you don't see on a day-to-day basis because life's too fast or... You're, you're glued to your phone for your email, text messages, job responsibilities, social media, whatever it is. And, you know, what you're talking about is the chance to experience these things in a meaningful way. And I think the world's better off when more people can do that. Yeah. 
I agree. Well, is there anything you want to talk about or anything you want to say to – there's quite a few people listening. Well, I would say uh, archery has been a great sport, and it's you know helped shape who I am in terms of uh, you know, dedication, discipline, these kinds of things. It's been a great complement and outlet to my normal line of work, and I've really enjoyed getting young people into archery, and we're going to get a bunch more of it in archery at Auburn University now, just looking at the excitement and enthusiasm around the new club. But um, I want to go back just real quickly to what we're talking about and this great North American model for conservation. I encourage everybody who doesn't know about it to learn about it because we have wildlife and wild places at a level like not most of the world. And it's not by accident. It's because sportsmen, the men and women, uh, who hunt and fish have really paid for that and put it on their shoulders to make sure everybody has this resource. And uh, I think it's important everybody realizes that. Yeah. And also it wouldn't, it, it would be beneficial for anyone out there. I should do a better job talking about it. Um, but I think anyone out there and normally for Christmas, I buy memberships for, for friends that I, that I want to build interest in the club, but do a little bit of research on the Boone and Crockett club and look at the true history behind it and recognize the fact that it's not just a club of record books. And for any of you who know me know that I don't even know how to score a lot of things. I just know from the amount of deer I've shot, this is probably a, such and such class deer this is a such and such class deer and every now and then i'm with a guide or someone who's just geeked out on knowing score and they score it but i'm not really favorable to scoring but when i looked at the history of the boone and crockett club and the history of what the founders wanted the club to be and what they wanted the club to do it was a very, very easy decision for me to be part of that. And if you're wanting to, you know, I th- everything's set up too to where I'm sure it's deductible, isn't it? Yep. I'm sure Make a donation to become an associate member. Yep. You can become an associate member, which is normally what I, what I buy for people for Christmas gifts. Um, I think it's very valuable that you take a look at it and they have a very, very important message um out there for fair chase hunting it's the basis of the club and it's the basis of what so many decisions in the club are made on is is this fair chase ethics so if that's something that you're into um i know that i'm i'm thankful that you nominated me into the club glad to have you um which there's certainly different levels and you know, if you want to dedicate more time, there's different opportunities there. But if nothing else, look at it and support it in any way you can because it's a valuable, valuable tool to our community. And I can't thank you enough for your friendship. Oh, it's thank been, you, John. It's, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been great. And I don't know, everybody. Have a good week. And I look forward to giving you some coaching here coming up. I know I was supposed to have your homework video posted tonight, but Steve was able to come into town for something that he had to do for work, and I wanted to sit down and chat with him and cook backstraps. All right, very good. <laughs> so we've had a delay. See you, everybody. Knock on.
Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com